May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, Joe Cohen. Uh, He's a uh, very fine guitarist and sitar player, but uh, he's been uh, more involved with singing recently, as you'll learn, and came to... uh, Zen Center, while Shunyu Suzuki was still alive. And uh, we'll hear more from him about um, all that. And uh, you'll hear uh, Joe uh, talking about his uh, high-end audio business. Um, Mainly he talked about speaker cables, but... uh, Looking at his uh, site, uh, the Lotus Group, uh, Breathing Life into Music, lotusgroupusa.com, it's got all sorts of stuff that's uh, quite mysterious. This is just part one, and next week I'm going to put up part two. Joe Cohen, next week's going to be about music. Uh we do we do we do quite a bit of audiophile stuff in this one. Uh, next week will be uh, mainly music, but audiophile stuff and stuff. A little bit about his wife Dario, who uh, is a jazz singer. I want to say uh, one thing. Oh, uh, I took off uh, the uh, podcast with Robert Anderson at his request. He listened to it and said, hmm. Uh, one thing he said, I'm not really a psychoanalyst. And then he started noticing other things. And so uh, I said, all right, I'll take it off. Um, and uh, oh, uh, something I added to uh, Jerry Bollock's podcast from last week, which wasn't there at first, uh, was uh, that uh, he uh, has a blog site, jerrybollock.blogspot.com, J-E-R-R-Y-B-O-L-I-C-K, blogspot.com, and that's, uh, the name of it is Meditation in the Slow Lane, and that's a, a, a blog for his poetry. Oh, and I wanted to say something I noticed today. Uh, Katrinka and I uh, took a walk to a nearby pharmacy with uh, our doggy, Bandita, and uh, she said um, that our street, uh, not the one we live on, but the one it goes on to, the one we live on is sort of like an alley, the one it goes into, she said, they need uh, sleeping police. Uh, and uh, <laughs> policity door. <laughs> uh, 
and that's uh, speed bump. Or actually, uh, they do have speed bumps here and there in, in neighborhoods, but speed humps are much better. Speed bumps should be illegal because they're hard on axles and on riders and cars. And But the humps are the ones that are more gradual. She said, uh, yeah, people are going down there too fast. Hmm. So uh, maybe I'll mention that to kind of get that to the local banjar, the neighborhood uh, little governance group. Uh, and uh, they sort of run neighborhoods here. And uh, then she said, well, I wonder what the speed limit is. And then we both realized something. We have never seen a posted speed limit anywhere in Bali. And uh, I've never seen or heard of anybody getting a moving violation. <laughs> and you know what? People are pretty, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the people here are good drivers. They're considerate and traffic is very cooperative. And society is very cooperative and I don't know, it does it pretty much without police. They just seem to check people's registration to see if they're driving legally. And they used to ticket a lot of foreigners. But when Joe Colby came, as, as, came in as president, gee, about eight years ago, uh, he made things a lot better and eliminated a lot of graft. And that, that I, I just don't hear about that like he used to. The, the, the motorcycle cops disappeared from the tourist area <laughs> once they got word they couldn't uh, take bribes. And I uh, I remember I, I uh, five years ago, I, I had to go to, uh, my landlord took me to a police station uh, because I had to report a lost uh, bank card. It actually wasn't lost. I just never used it, so I... I cut it up and threw it away. Well, it turned out I I had a bank account, but I I I just never used it. But then when I wanted to use it, they asked me for my card, and I didn't have it. So um, I did learn that I should not say I destroyed it and threw it away. That would be bad. I say I lost it. Where did you lose it? I don't know. Um, and so anyway, while I'm talking to the officer. Um, it was all uh, easy and it was all in Indonesian and uh, very friendly. There was a big sign behind him that said, this officer uh, cannot receive money. Uh, and hmm, I thought that was pretty neat. Anyway, uh, so uh, if you drive here, <laughs> Be sure not to break the speed limit. So, uh, look, uh, just as soon as we've had our pause to meditate, we'll give Joe Cohen a call and hear what he has to say. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you want. And when you're through, hit unpause. And we'll be there to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever. And we'll give Joe Cohen a call.
Hey, Joe. Hold on just a second. Give me a second here. David? Yes. Hi, I can hear you loud and clear now. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, you know. It's been a long journey, man. <laughs> yeah, I guess we could say that. Yeah. Wow. What are you up to? Oh, my goodness. Um... So um, I'm married. I have a um, 30. How is he? 30. It's um, going to be 33-year-old son who is uh, on a track to become a PhD in mathematics. Aha. Uh -huh. um, my wife is a professional vocalist. Um, she toured for 10 years with Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. Oh, love him! Uh, love him! Yeah. Yes, so I got to know Dan pretty well before he passed. Oh, that um, was a tragedy. Yeah, wonderful. A lot of stories about him. You know, he was really quite a character. Yeah. Um, and she's also a jazz vocalist, and she's a teacher, all of those things. Mm. Um, my profession is I uh, manufacture, I design and manufacture high-end cabling and accessories for audio equipment for hi-fi nuts. I also import and distribute stuff uh, in the same field. Um, I'm practicing Tai Chi pretty seriously. I studied with a guy named Bob Amaker many years ago in Mill Valley, and then he came back. He had taught in Russia and in Hawaii, hmm. and then he came here for a while, and then he passed away. Um, a year and a half ago, and his wife is carrying on. He had a much younger wife, and she's a Russian, and she's a fantastic teacher. Um, I'm studying North Indian classical vocal music. I've been a lifelong student of music, of Indian music in particular. You know, I played the sitar when I was at, at, at Zen Center. Yeah. But uh, these past years, I really haven't had the use of my hands. You know, I have... I have arthritis, I have uh, um, probably carpal tunnel, and I have trigger fingers. I have all these things going on in my hands that preclude me from playing an instrument. I studied with Dr. Hussein for tablas for about 30 years. Mm. And then at a certain point along the way, I just really had this desire to play melody again. And I, I picked up the five-string banjo and started working on that pretty seriously. And, mm. uh, and then one day I was practicing, and... Um, gee, I, this is a little painful. Uh, let's give it a rest. And um, uh, rest didn't solve the problem. And so I thought, well, what can I do? And uh, so I've been studying singing. And um, that's a real challenge, especially for someone who doesn't isn't naturally gifted with a nice voice. <laughs> huh. How about you? I mean, how did you end up in, in uh, Bali? That's so exotic and wonderful. Uh, well, um, uh, my mother died after a, uh, inspiring life and, and death. And, um, at the, at the age of 98 and, uh, got all that in order. And my mate Katrinka, now my wife Katrinka's, uh, ex-husband died who she was responsible for he was in a convalescent home and mm. so uh 
um, I said to her, uh, well, we're sort of free now and we've got a little money. If we go to Asia, it will last a lot longer. So we did. And we chose Bali. <laughs> well, uh, Bali, of all the places on the planet, seems one of the most magical. I'd love to visit there someday. So it's still it's still affordable for an expat to live there. Yeah, it's getting more expensive, but uh, we, you know, some people are saying it's as expensive as Thailand, but it depends on what you know. It's just it's like, you know, we lived in Marin and Sonoma, very very expensive places to live. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, knew a lot of people who did and didn't have the incomes that people think of as needed to live there. So, um, uh, yeah, we, we get, we get by fine here. Look, it's, it's the way I see it is it's a good place to live, but I wouldn't want to visit here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's just yeah. so crowded and, uh, but you know, there's still dances and music and, uh, all, all of that stuff we only see if there's somebody visiting that wants to see it because we've seen it enough, you know, and, uh, uh, and then, you know, now and then we'll see some of it again, uh, or see something more esoteric. I've, uh, I've got a song about it called Bali Go Down, which is based mm. on, uh, something Katrinka said. She said one day they're gonna, they're going to build one building too many, lay one brick too many, and the island's going to sink into the ocean. And I thought, yeah. oh, oh, that's a great image. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they just keep, new cards keep coming on all the time. And it, it, they keep wanting more and more tourists. Of course, COVID slowed things down. It was paradise during COVID, but sort right. of guilty paradise because... It was hard on a lot of people, uh, sure. very hard on a lot of people. And, and uh, it was sort of uh, actually our expenses didn't go down because we had to help a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, well, listen, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honored that you, you thought of me and um, it's been so long. I mean, I came to Zen Center that's 53 years ago, I think. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, um, so, I mean, the roots of it go back further, you know, I, I mean, I... Um, yeah, I want to hear first, that. I want to hear that. I mean, all the way back, uh, really, to when I was uh, maybe in the equivalent of middle school or something, I was babysitting for some friends uh, in the neighborhood, and um, they had a Shakyamuni, a beautiful carved wooden standing Shakyamuni, mm. uh, that I, I would stare at. I just looked at it, and it made me feel good looking at it. Where was and this? This was in Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia. Mm. And, um, and then later... Um, when I was in college, I was really focused on philosophy. I studied Indian philosophy, um, read about Buddhism, 
And um, where where did you go to college? I, I went to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. They oh had yeah, work. They had this work study program where you would you go to the campus for a few months, then you go out and work, and then you come back for six months, and then you go out and work for three months or six months, yeah. and a year abroad. And I was studying sitar by then with Nikhil Banerjee, and I arranged for a year abroad, which kind of um, ended in a little bit of a debacle in that I was not part of any program. I just went, and I ended up studying with um, uh, Annapurna Devi, who was at the at the at one time was married to uh, Ravi Shankar. She was Ali Akbar Khan's sister. And so I was was living in Bombay and studying with her, but living in Bombay, I was totally isolated. It took me three trains to get to her apartment in Malabar Hill. And so it was just unsustainable. Why didn't you move over there? Uh, Well, India, you know, India is not an easy place to be, for sure. Yeah, Um, I've spent time there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So I went traveling and I, I felt a little bit crushed that I hadn't, you know, hadn't been able to fulfill the dream, so to speak. And and I ended up uh, going to the Sri Aurobindo ashram in southern India in Pondicherry. Um, yeah, I I've been there. People. That's very cool. Wow. I met some people uh, traveling who kind of directed me. I met this one guy who seemed really... Um, you know, really into the sadhu thing, and, and he gave me a number of places to visit, and that was the first one I went, and um, I... Uh, so you were in, or- you were in uh, what's he called, Oroville? I did visit it. I mean, when I visited Oroville, it was nothing but the very center of it, the very spiral center, there, and a few people living around it. It was it was just beginning. Uh-huh. Um, and um, when, when, did, heard, uh, was, when did when uh, did Sri Aurobindo uh, die? Gee, I don't I don't really know for sure, to be honest with you. I mean, it was you know many years before I arrived. There, oh well, no, was, I, I think he died in the fifties. All right, 50, uh, and the mother was still alive, and oh, I, yeah? I actually mm. did have an audience with her. Um, well, I had an interesting experience. I came, I arrived in Pondicherry, and I was sick. So I um, I had to stay in a hotel for a couple of days before I recovered. And then I was admitted in that monastery. It was a, uh, what do you call it? A um, ashram, yeah. of course. And, um, so um, I went in and I was talking to a librarian there. It was an English gentleman. And he was telling me that he had had cancer and was given just months to live. And so he decided to come to India. And it had been like 11 years since, um, you know, since then. Ah. And he asked, asked me what I was up to. And I said, you know, I'd come to study music. And he kind of got this faraway look in his eyes. And he said, you go over, sit down there. And he put me in front of a tape recorder. And he played a recording of Ali Akbar Khan. Um, and I had this very profound experience that everything was okay. Everything was going to be just fine. It was very beautiful and overwhelming. And um, so I felt, you know, something had stirred in me um, that was that was profound. When I came back to Antioch, I, I met these people who lived in a geodesic dome in the woods uh, outside of town. And they would pick me up every Wednesday night. They were students of Yasutani Roshi. And they would pick me up every Wednesday night, and I would sit with them and chant with them, and then they'd bring me back. 
And, and then when I graduated, which was 1970, I came to Berkeley and um, I started sitting in the Berkeley Zendo and Mel said you could go to the city to be a guest student for a week. And I thought that was a good idea. So I went and I ended up staying for six years. Mm. So, yeah. You stayed uh, where for six weeks? Six years. I, I six years? Oh, years. oh. And, and Mel said, I, I just missed, where did you go to be a guest student? In the city. He In the city, a, yeah. I just want to yeah, make sure that. For a week, and I ended up staying. Uh, six, six years. Six, now, what What are the uh, years of this? What year did you go to uh, India? That was um, over, uh, spanning part of 67 and 68. Uh-huh. Incidentally, I love yeah. Pondicherry. It's really a nice place. So French. Uh, you yes, know. I, I have very, I have vivid memories of the light in Pondicherry, the way the light would mm. shine. I, I remember um, the people's, uh, the shutters of people's windows being painted, you know, beautiful blues and greens and yeah. reds. Yeah. So yeah. It's a, Lovely, lovely part, especially, it, of course, it, the older. It was really different. And it's like a separate, whatever they say, province or whatever. It's very small. Uh, yeah. It, it's near Chennai. I was at the Ramana Ashram in Tiruvannamalai. Did you go there? No. Um, I. That was the only ashram I, I, I yeah. stayed in. I, I did go to... Um, well, I can't remember. I went to Madurai, the temple town. Mm. I remember visiting a Hindu temple there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. So, uh, and you went back to Antioch, and then, and now, how did you get to Sin Center? What was well, that? Well, I, I, I don't know how I knew about it, but um, I when I came to California, I had two things in mind. I wanted to study music and I wanted to study Zen. Yeah. So I, I found the Berkeley Zendo one way or another. I don't remember how exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Good place to, good place to end up there. Yeah. Uh, but you didn't end up good place to land. Uh, For sure. <laughs> and that was, uh, what year was that? Well, that was 1970. Uh-huh. So, <clears throat> so all right. So, uh, what happened there? Well, I, you know, I don't. Not a lot that I recall from from Berkeley. I mean, my memories are really uh, centered in in Zen Center, Tassajara, and Green Gold. Yeah, sure. Time I spent. What happened there? I, well, I, I should just preface it all by saying that uh, certainly uh, the most in, in so many ways, the most profound and wonderful thing that has happened in my life. Um, you know, uh, I think everything that followed, um, you know, good, bad, and neutral, uh, you know, has been influenced by it. And if I, uh, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, life is not always straightforward, right? But, um, uh, it's 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 something that has stood me in good stead. I I don't know how else to say it, but it it helped me tremendously. 
I, mm-hmm. I mean, if you remember the context of the time, uh, you know, the Vietnam War was going on. We were potential fodder for the, the war machine. Um, you know, there was a, a lot a lot of um, freaking out. There was a back to nature. There was, you know, I was certainly would consider myself to have been a hippie. When I showed up at Zen Center, I had hair down to my shoulder blades. Um, <laughs> I, I remember... I remember, you know, I'd been at Zen Center for some time, and I used to ride the uh, the, the trolley on, on Market Street. I don't know where I was going, but I, I kept going back and forth, and I would see this barber shop, and I saw, saw this one barber who had a beard, and I thought, oh, well, he can't be all bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, and so finally, I, I plucked up the courage to go in, and I said, I want to cut my hair. And he said, are you sure you're ready? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, he actually sent me home. It was very funny. He sent me home. And then I came back, and I had him progressively cut my hair shorter. You know, I didn't do it all at once. Uh-huh. And that felt right. That felt right. Mm. Mm. And so I, I was at, at the city center for two years. Suzuki Roshi was there, of course. Um, what do you remember about and, that? Well, I remember, you know... Um, so many of his lectures just sitting there. Um, I remember the feeling of things, you know, it was very gracious in so many ways. And I, you know, one story that I, that I is pretty vivid is um, I was Jikido and I was sleeping in the Zendo the night before session. And, um, I'm gently nudged awake, and it's Pat. I can't remember her last name. Who was uh, Suzuki Roshi's um, attendant? Harris Hoff. She was awake. Pardon? Harris Hoff. Ah. Pat Harris Hoff. Oh, she was older. Older, yes. I, yeah, I, I saw a photo of her recently, I think, on the Kik site or somewhere. And um, she was waking me up. Suzuki Roshi was offering incense at the altar. And we were the only people in the Zendo. And that was very confusing to me. You know, why was I being awakened and why was he already here? And, I, you know, so um, it turned out that that particular session, that first day, uh, the person responsible for ringing the bell had gotten up an hour early and rung the bell an hour early. Yeah, and that was Mel. That was Mel. I didn't know that. <laughs> and evidently, evidently, everyone went back to sleep. <laughs> Right. Because, uh, you know, it wasn't time, um, but Suzuki Roshi was there. And I remember um, this probably famous story, you know, that I, I remember I was since I was Jikido, I was sitting right by the door on Laguna Street, but I could hear him from inside and his voice was raised. And I remember him saying, you know, this is the only moment there is. You shouldn't expect a single moment more. And he got off his seat, and you could hear him hitting everybody in the zendo twice on one side, twice on the other. You know, it was pretty strong when he uh, um, when he started, but by the time that he got to me, it was like a little tap, 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 tap. <laughs> <But> he, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, a very uh, – many people – have different memories of that, but you got one from the inside. Uh, you were in there sitting. Ha <laughs> uh, Yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah, I think Mel went around telling people, "Oh, it's a mistake," and go back to bed. And oh then, God! 
and then, uh, you know, Suzuki used it as a teachable moment. Uh, sure, yeah. 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 Neat. Neat. What more? Oh, my goodness. Um, so, one time at Tassajara, I was late to the Zendo. And, and my brain, you know, I don't recall exactly. I'm conflating both Silas Hoadley and uh, Peter Schneider. And I'm thinking it was Peter Schneider maybe as a guest Eno or something. Um, but, um, so I was... Peter late, Schneider, so what was, about Eno? Well, uh, one of the two of them was the person who was, you know, headed to the Zendo to officiate. Oh, but I the Dochi. Okay, I was late. And so I was behind the Jisha. Oh, yeah. And it started to hail and he had an umbrella and he turned the umbrella upside down and started collecting hail in it and laughing. I thought that was the most amazing moment. <laughs> You're talking about Suzuki yeah. Roshi. No, I think, I think it was, it was, it was either Silas or, or Peter. I can't remember who uh -huh. it was, but I, uh -huh. memory. it was kind of a joyous, a, a joyous moment. Uh huh. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think which one of them would have done that. I think, I think Peter. Yeah, I think it was Peter. You know, for the longest time I thought it was Silas, but I thought no, Peter was the one. Peter had such a, a you know, um, a brilliant uh, personality. He had a great sense of humor. Yeah. So I think it might. Yeah, I think Silas would. Silas was like steady, and yeah, just would yeah. have kept going. Uh. Peter was a little more quirky or something. Yeah. Haha. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. good. That, yeah. A great moment. You know, I was thinking just, you know, just as you called, I was, I was thinking how. Oh, right. You said Peter was the doshi. So Suzuki wasn't there. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think he was the official, um, Anything. I, so that's that's why the, I think maybe he was visiting, but I just can't I can't remember it's too too far back in the mists of ancient history. Well, now wait a minute. Uh, you said he was officiating. Well, yeah, because it, you know obviously he was the person coming into the zendo to yeah. So Suzuki was, wasn't there. No, he wasn't there. Right. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah I'd forgotten that already. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. I like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, what I was thinking was that we all shared these experiences, but at the same time, I think everyone had a completely personal experience of what happened, of you know, what they were going through um, there. Hmm. Um, I can tell you another another story that's you know pretty prominent in in, in my memory is um, I used to carve things out of manzanita. Yeah. And and um, and I would you know I would carve them very smooth and then sandpaper them with you know eighty grit, one twenty grit, three twenty grit, four hundred, six hundred, and then I would 
oil them. Right. And so I have two stories. I have two stories about carving manzanita at Tassajara. No term. One, uh, one, I carved a, a wooden egg for Charlotte Selver. Huh. And I went around, <laughs> I went around and I asked everyone to rub their nose on it. Um, don't ask me where, where I came up with that, but you know, needed oil. I thought, well, let's ask everyone to do this. So when I went to give it to her as a gift, I, we were having a class. It must have been nighttime. The moment I handed it to her, the moment before she knew what it was, the lights went out. And so all she did was feel it. And she squealed, you know, uh, delight. She squealed in some kind of wonderful sound. So that for me was a, a wonderful memory. And then um, the second story about carving manzanita was I had made a gnoe for uh, Richard Baker for his birthday, and I worked on it for a long time. And it was it was a nice shape. It came out really nice, and it was very smooth. And we had a, a dinner party, and um, uh, Yamada Muman Roshi was visiting then at Tassahara. Oh. And... I handed the gnoe to Richard Baker, Roshi, and uh, he looked at it, admired it, and handed it to um, Yamada Muman Roshi to look at. And, you know, I didn't know what had transpired, but later uh, uh, Baker Roshi, um, you know, called me and said that, you know, he had shown it to... Um, Yamada Muman Roshi, who had admired it, and he said the proper protocol would have been for him to offer it to Yamada Muman Roshi, but he said he couldn't bring himself to do it. So now he was tasking me with making another one. Oh, that's nice. So, so he, um, he had found this gnarly piece of uh, manzanita up at Suzuki Roshi's ashes site, and he wanted me to make it out of that. And I thought, oh, this is so important. Um, you know, I have to consult with Baker Roshi. So I think once a week I would bring it to him. We'd talk about it. What would I do next? You know, all of this effort put into it. At the end of the day, it was unusable. <laughs> and I had... I had to start over again. And this time I just did it on my own. I just said, I have to do this completely on my own. And, um, and I carved a nice shape, but there was something that was missing. And um, I had an idea what I might do, but I wasn't sure if I should do it. And I, I showed it to Fran Blanco. Oh. I remember Fran, he was a painter, an yeah. artist. And, um, I said, I'm thinking of doing this one little detail on this, but I'm, I'm afraid I might ruin it if I do it. And she said her painting teacher had told her that, um, that a great, the difference between, you know, a great painting and a pedestrian one is a risk taken. And I thought that was, that was really interesting advice. Mm. So, so I went ahead and did it, and it worked out. And we sent it to Japan, and we got a, um, you know, a letter back saying it would it was splendid. And and I think that was a a, a wonderful uh, lesson for me 
to um, learn to trust myself. Mm. You know, but oh, I have to defer to some other authority about because this is so important. And then I realized, you know, at, at the end of, end of the day, it's I have to direct what I'm doing from myself. So that was that was a good learning mm. experience. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, please oh. continue. <laughs> well, I, I have some other stories. So um, another story uh, was, um, so I was having, uh, at, in, in, in San Francisco, um, I was coming through the uh, uh, swinging doors between the kitchen and the dining hall. Right. And... Um, I went through the doors and I let the doors swing behind me. And at last minute, I went, oh, my goodness, you know, there might be somebody behind me. So I reached back and I caught the door. And at that moment, the muffin fell off of my plate onto the floor. And Huitza-san was right behind me. And without missing a beat, he picked it up and put it on my plate and took the one. Uh, I'm sorry, put, took one from his. He put it on his plate. And took the one that was clean from his plate and put it on my plate. Ooh, good for him. Yeah, that was that was uh, that was beautiful. Um, also, I can brag that I gave Vanya Palmer's uh, zazen instruction when he first came to Tassajara. <laughs> oh, that's neat. That's neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, you should go visit him. In uh, he lives in Luzerne. Yeah, so be wonderful. And Have he has been? he has a uh, uh, a retreat in the, the Swiss Alps above Lake Luzerne that uh, called Felsentor. Uh, that's really, <laughs> really unbelievably beautiful location. It's just staggering, <laughs> and. Uh, he just bought an old hotel, and uh, uh, Paul Disco uh, built a. Well, his him he was in charge of building a traditional Japanese zendo behind the hotel. It's really an amazing place, and there's this sort of community there. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Here's another Tassajara story. Yeah. So, um, I don't, it's been a long time since I've been there. I don't know if there's still cabins up on the hill opposite the old Zendo, but my cabin was up there. Sure there is. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, during lunch break. And Michael Jamvold, his, his room was on the other side of the wall from my mm -hmm. space. I can't remember if I had a roommate. I might have had a roommate. I probably did. Those were but pretty it, it, small, those rooms. Yeah. So uh, it was lunch break, and Michael and I were kind of arguing back and forth whether it was okay for a Zen monk to lie down during the day. Ah. Uh, with with uh, you know Michael being opposed to the idea. Uh, but so we're going back and forth about this. And then uh, someone piped up from another cabin. Will you guys please be quiet? I'm trying to take a nap. 
that's good. That's good. Um, yeah. yeah, well, uh, Michael was um, was strict. <laughs> yes. Michael was a, a Zazen aficionado. I mean, I remember that he, he would practice in his room in addition to all the other periods during the day. Yeah. At, at, uh, at Page Street. Yeah, yeah. Toward, um, you know, uh, at at the end of his life, you know, he, he has passed on. Uh, yes, I heard. Yeah, you know, he was in Japan, and I visited him several times. There, uh, he'd um, he would he 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 just sit so much. And he got this temple, I think Hoetsu, uh, he got it for him, and he was like a caretaker of it in Shizuoka, and he told me he'd just sit all day, and uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, he was a character. Was he happy? Happy? Michael was never happy. <laughs> Michael was tortured. Oh, God. You know, yeah. it, it, his father died cursing him and his sister. And that was a hard one to live with. Goodness, I didn't know any of that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's sort of maybe Scandinavian, uh, sort of severe upbringing. Uh, but mm -hmm. he did yeah. well with it. He handled it well. I mean, he, he, uh, he, he had a sense of humor. Oh, once mm -hmm. I was, he was visiting, uh, us, Elon, uh, my my prior wife and me and and our son clay in in uh san rafael this is about oh 95 so clay would have been four years old and 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 um, you know he was with clay in the living room and i was back in the kitchen or something i was gone for a while when i come back just as i enter the room he says to clay and if you tell anyone, I'll kill your, I'll kill you. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just the timing of it was so great. I mean, he had this dark sense of humor. Hmm. Well, <laughs> you, you I appreciated Shizuoka. it. Huh? You mentioned you mentioned he was in Shizuoka. Uh, that's that's what that's like halfway to the west from. Um, Tokyo, isn't it? Somewhere out that way. Shikoku. Shikoku. She, oh, Shikoku. If I said Shizuoka, it was a mistake. He, he was in Shikoku, the, the, you know, the smallest of the four main islands of Japan. Shizuoka oh, wow. is the province where Suzuki came from and uh, ah. the, the main town, uh, the big town near Yaizu, which isn't tiny. Um, so... I forget the year. I think it was, was it 2010? Uh, Dan Hicks had a tour in Japan. Mm. Um, I, I flew out with them, uh, and I have business in Japan because I import some audio products from there. And they played in the Blue Note in Tokyo, and I sat next to a, a tea farmer from Shizuoka who knew more 
about American music than I will ever dream of knowing. It was pretty amazing. I experienced that in in Japan. That, that uh, there will be there will be a little there there will be people, some group or some certain amount of people that are more into what's happening in America in some uh, nook or cranny of our culture than people in America. I mean, they sell, they, Japanese, I don't know about now, but have bought more, uh, jazz albums than anyone. I did an experimental, an album of experimental, uh, like rock and roll underground type music in 80, uh, 86. And, um, uh, uh, Japan, I, you know, I've got a bunch of records left. And, uh, Japan, they ordered three cases of them last year. Uh, really? when, when I went to Japan, I'd been spending time in the underground music world and, and, you know, I'd been making music, uh, different types, not just the underground type. And, uh, uh, so I met, the, I got in with this sort of art crowd in Tokyo for a while. I didn't stick with it, you know, cause, uh, but I was around for a while. And so I played some really bizarre stuff I'd done, but it's, it's, uh, still, it's all song based, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, a guy listened to it and he said, ah, reminiscent of Tuxedo Moon. And Tuxedo Moon was, I just loved it. It was this, it was, but it was, Hardly anybody in America knew who Tuxedo Moon was. They, they were like San Francisco-based underground, you know, new wave music. <laughs> were they in the sixties or later? No, this is eighties. Uh, Tuxedo Moon in the eighties. Oh yeah, their great mm-hmm. song was "What's the Use," uh, mm-hmm. and w- Winston. Winston Tong was the lead singer, and I got to know him later. Uh, mm. Anyway, and I would run into that. Uh, uh, Alan Sanaka, you know, does, uh, you know, is the abbot of the Berkeleys, and uh, now he he does sort of uh, bluegrass uh, folk type music. And I'd oh, go yeah. to concerts of his in Japan. He'd always have a good following. A lot of people were into it, you know. Uh, well. In, in Tokyo, I mean, the line of people to meet Dan Hicks and, and the Hot Licks was two and a half hours. Ah. Uh, I mean, uh, just one after the other, very patiently waiting. Mm. So there, people who are fans are really, really into it in Japan. Yeah. It, it seems that there are people that, uh, there's a there's a tradition of really specializing in in some narrow range of a field. Yes, uh, I heard of a, I heard of one gentleman whose life goal was to make the very best R core transformer for an amplifier. I mean that was his his reason for being in life was to yes. make the best transformer. And there are people like that for sure. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, th- that's really a uh, a uh, insightful comment about Japan. Uh, there, you know, 
uh, in America, the idea is more to keep going and becoming bigger and better and know more and do more. There, the specialization is really important. And uh, being satisfied with doing one thing as well as you can. And, and I, I think it's less competitive than the way we think of it. We're always thinking of the best. They yes, just think yes. of doing as doing it as good as I can. Exactly. Yeah. No, that that's absolutely true. Um, so uh, I had a big hand in in conceiving of and designing a loudspeaker uh, based around a, uh, a speaker driver that I had been importing from Japan from this company um, in the um, kind of a, in the Japanese Alps near near uh, Mount Fuji. Um, and they make what's called a field coil driver. This is the old technology before we had Alnico magnets that were strong enough to be passive magnets for loudspeaker drivers. They had to use an electromagnet that had to have a power source. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, a good way to it's inefficient, but it's a good way to make a loudspeaker because there's a lot of control over the driver. So this particular company was making this exotic driver that um, the paper for the cone is made by a ninth generation national treasure uh, paper maker, Mr. Ichibei Iwani. The, uh, the frame of the driver is machined from brass and uh, gold plated and then coated with 20 coats of Urushi lacquer. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, and, you know, every detail about this driver is just to the max. It, and so this, we, we built this loudspeaker. Um, it never became a, a commercial item, but we did manage to get, um, uh, kind of an honorable mention in a book by the Absolute Sound magazine. Uh, they they had a book called The Illustrated History of High-End Audio and the Loudspeaker Edition were in there under wonderments and oddities. So uh, that's a, uh, something I'm, I'm happy about. And it's in my living room, and it's freaking awesome. It's just unbelievable. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's great. That's great. If you're in the San Francisco area, please come visit me. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, same here. Um, I, I've been involved with the uh, recording here in, uh, you know, I have studios, speakers, um, uh, and, uh, the engineer I work with, um, I, I bought him some things to, to, uh, then he pays back by, uh, engineering, uh, you know, music of mine. And mm. one thing he got was some cables. That were specially mm -hmm. made by some audiophiles and like over in Chandi Dasa or something. It's, um, but I, I don't know anything about it, but you would probably understand. Uh, yeah. I, I'll, I'll look, I'll send you a link to their website. They're, they're fanatics, <laughs> but, but this is we're audio all. to go from, uh, Mike, uh, for the mics. Uh, the the cable for the mics. I think that's all it was for. Uh, and of course, the mic and recording is the most important part. Well, what's interesting in any system is that every part matters. Yeah, of course. And, um, 
and and that's where you know people who are you know fanatic about it just drill down into every aspect they can figure you know uh, vibrations uh, inter, uh, interaction of electromagnetic fields construction i mean all of these things add up to the the final result and what is it what it is we're trying to do at the end of the day is to allow the maximum amount of the signal that was originally recorded to come through and what's surprising is how much information really exists on a CD or on an LT. It's it's astonishing how much information is there. You said an LT? Yeah, an LP. Remember oh, those? an LP, <laughs> LP. Yeah. 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 Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's sort of amazing. Uh, to think of it like on an LP or on a CD or, or a DVD, just these little grooves, um, how could they? And, and also, if you just look at wave files and think, wow, that's carrying all that information and puts back together into uh, a song or a movie. It's amazing. Amazing. I don't, it is amazing. I, I think you, you might have a better understanding of it to me. To me, it's just magic. I have no idea what's happening or how that could be. Yeah, it gets pretty technical for sure. Wow. So what, you know, I had a, I had a stereo system in, at, when I was living at Page Street. It was a, it was a pioneer, uh, it was a higher end pioneer system. Um, and, and I had a turntable and I used to play records and I remember that, um, uh, uh, one time, uh, David Silva asked me if he could play some music in, in my room. And I was, I think I was away from the city or something. And I said, sure. And when I came back, evidently I was in trouble because they were playing loud music in there. Um, I guess Grateful Dead for sure, knowing <laughs> David. Uh, and ult- ultimately, I sold that system to Baker Roshi. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's pretty good. So, you got money from him? Yeah. Whoa. So, that's one for the for the record books. My, my profession, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very good, very good. Um well what what's your feeling about uh 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 analog versus digital? Boy, okay. So you know, up until a couple of years ago, I was pretty much solidly in the camp that analog is the be-all and end-all. And in some ways, it still is because the, there's nothing that can replicate the the organic feel uh, of the sound. But I have to say that the advances, not necessarily the, the latest technical advantages, but uh, one designer in particular whose work I'm, in, I'm importing from England um, has opened, you know, my mind and my ears to the potential of uh, digital reproduction. Um, and so it's just amazing. Both are amazing in their own way. Uh-huh. Done, if, if it's done right, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, there 
there was a big controversy recently because um, Mobile Fidelity Records, which is just up the road for me in Sebastopol, uh, for years, you know, and their 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 uh, uh, reason for being was to take original analog masters and uh, and transfer them directly to LPs. Um, but in recent years, um, it wasn't known. They weren't telling people that they were doing an in-between digital process. That's uh, right. The scandal, yeah. the scandal was not that they were using a digital process. They could have been forthcoming about it. But the scandal was they didn't tell people, so people didn't know. That's but, yeah, right, yeah. Quite a brouhaha, yeah. Yeah, some one... one guy was wrote something about it that he suspected it just from listening to it. Uh, and uh, do, do you know who that was? I mean, do you remember that? And, and people were putting him down saying, no, it's the real thing. And finally, somehow it came out that they were doing that. Maybe not with all of it, but with some of it or something. And it's like they were the big thing in the world, right? Well, yeah, they certainly have a big presence. I mean, there's a, there's a number of, of companies that do that, but they have probably had the biggest presence, yeah. 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 Mm. So what's your uh, – do you have any opinion of, you know, the time to make the analog master from them? These are very old, you know, uh, you know mid-'80s cassettes is when it's digitized. Because I'm having them digitize them here, so so we can uh, we can remix them uh, here. Uh, yeah. uh, there are processes that that can help it, it, within the digital format to help clean up some of the noise, etc., from old recordings like that. I'm not really expert in that in that side of things, uh, but. Uh, when you when you're dealing with recordings that that are noisy, um, you know it's probably not a bad idea to employ some of that if it's affordable. Yeah, no, we do that here. I want them just uh, di straight digital copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't want them to mess with it because uh, I don't necessarily agree with their noise reduction methods. Yes, uh, I, I I can appreciate. I, I do appreciate that. Yeah. It was interesting. I was uh, I was looking at an interview with uh, uh, Rick Rubin and Neil Young, and um, they were talking about how this this latest uh, Neil Young recording that they put everything down on um, on analog tape, but they had to get it digitized immediately after because they said that the sound changes within minutes of recording to the tape. And I thought that was an interesting thing. Huh. So, huh. They, so they they got all the tracks down into uh, immediately into digital format, did all of their mixing, um, and then I think put it back into onto tape for the final mastering, and then onto you know however they made the recordings. But huh. that was interesting that they, they felt that it's not just year on year that tapes deteriorate, but minute by minute. And I thought, wow. wow. Wow, that's interesting. Um, I remember uh, I used to know uh, Taj Mahal, and he invited oh, yeah. me to come to uh, 
a concert of his where they were making it was direct to disc. Yes. You know about that, right? Where they make of the course. master record at the concert. So, uh, uh, what do you those, think about direct to disc? Those are the best sounding recordings, direct to disc. Mm. You know, I was, um, I have this recording uh, by Victor Feldman that's direct to disc. I was just listening to it the other day. Um, and, you know, this is true of my system anyway, that it makes things very lifelike. But you would believe that there, that, that it was a real, um, kick drum that was activating the air in the room. I mean, it was just so amazingly present. Ah, uh, uh, that's, that's interesting. Uh, you know, one thing that, uh, this, uh, I, I think about talking to you about this is that, uh, you're both a musician and an audiophile, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, it's, it's interesting. I have known engineers who, you know, work with, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of audio equipment, you know, making the best recording possible. And I go visit them in their homes and bring them something and they bring this crappy little thing out to listen <laughs> to it. I'm not an audiophile. Uh, I, You're better uh, off. I, uh, I, yeah, I have, I have high end speakers. Uh, I mean, not high end in terms, your terms, but yeah. they're studio speakers and, uh, they're, they're pretty good. But, um, I, I have some, some $15 earplugs that give a really good balance of the bass and the treble and my high end speakers are uh, emphasize the bass so much that it didn't really show how most people hear it, you know? And I've, I've, uh, and I was involved with, uh, building Studio D in Sausalito. And, uh, uh, Nils Home built the, uh, boxes for the, uh, uh, their back in 1982, $10,000 speakers, right? Uh, so is, is- Studio D was that part of the record plant, or is that? A it was started plant? by uh, 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 some people who had been involved with the record plant, and the record plant had uh, studios A, B, and C, but they didn't mm. have a big room for the big room sound. Mm. So Studio D was the big room sound, and they got a lot of big people in there. Uh, and um, but they had a little AM speaker, and you know they had different levels of speakers. Uh, they had these big, giant, you know, high-end ones. And then they had more like like what I've got, you know, like studio speakers that are like a foot tall or, you know, something like that. Then they had this little tiny speaker in the middle because they'd want to hear what it sounded like for AM. And then they'd do special AM mixes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, makes sense. Yeah. Definitely makes Hmm. Yeah. All right. Now, wait a minute. I have, I've gotten this way off because I was interested in all that. Uh, That's fine. And now where were we? Oh, you were a Zen Center and you had these speakers. Oh, and you sold them to, uh, uh, Dick Baker. Wow. Pretty good. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> can you continue on from there? Well, um, boy, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, 
I mean, there, there are a few incidents that, that occurred, you know, that, that are memorable. Um, one time, uh, Philip Whalen and I were serving in the Zendo at Tassajara, and we got this serious case of the giggles. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was all, all we could do to contain ourselves. And later he, he, he handed me a poem that said, um, it is nothing at all that makes us laugh. Mm. I don't know if I said the paper. I wish I did, but uh, I certainly remember that. Oh, he gave you that and you lost it. Uh, maybe. I don't know unless it's, you know, it might, there's, a, there's a folder it might be, and I have to go look. Yeah, you um, got to find that. Send it to me if you do. Uh, Mike Dixon <laughs> was having dinner with us in uh, Sebastopol. And he did a little scribbling of me on a bicycle or something like that. And, uh, you mm. know, uh, I, uh, I thought, wow, I've got a Mike Dixon, you know, and I put, of course, I, I, I had actually bought one of his back when they mm. were affordable. Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, so I had this nice little picture and somehow it, Came off the wall at one point, and we're painting whatever, and at, rats uh, ate half of it, and oh, no. uh, it was great tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another uh, another thing that stands out is uh, working with Joshinson, um, oh. you know, sewing my, and she was she was so lovely. I mean, she was this sprightly diminutive character and I, I took her to a concert of um uh Nikhil Banerjee, my sitar teacher, and she loved it. And I, I gave her a record and I remember that she just p- played the hell out of it. I mean it's probably wore it out. Uh. And then uh after I'd left Zen Center, I don't remember what year it was, but I came back to visit and she was there and I went to see her in her room, and and she offered me her her bowls, her eating bowls. Goodness, and that's just, really something. I just didn't feel that I had earned them, you know, so I I declined, and um, I found out later that that Blanche had got them, and that that seemed appropriate to me. Yeah, I can understand you feeling that way. Yeah, Joshin son, did she she you'd sold a Roxu with her? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you remember her missing uh, finger joint? Yes, right. Oh my goodness, that was bec- that was how she um, she wanted to switch teachers, and that was her offering. And I was taking it pretty seriously. She cut off like half a finger. I mean, she's not yakuza. Uh, I don't know if she had to yeah. do that, but Lord, uh, man. Japanese can really take things seriously. Wow. <laughs> Americans would say, uh, oh, hey, I really enjoyed studying with you. I think I'll go study with so-and-so now. Uh, <laughs> bye. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten that part about Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. 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 She was wonderful. She sewed yeah. an Ocasa for me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, that was the okay so I used after that, because the one 
that I had made when I was ordained uh, was a little crooked. And mm. it was sewed mainly by Jeannie de Prima. But so not, uh. not, I don't mean to criticize Jeannie. She did a great job. Uh, mm. And, uh, but, and it was older and everything. And uh, Joshin Sanz was a little different style. It was like really big and comfortable. She gave it to me for mm. my Shuso ceremony. She surprised me. Like on the day of the Shuso ceremony. Wow, with it. wow that's really something. Yeah, so, nice. Uh, do you still have, do you have a, a, a practice there, a zendo, or what, what's going on with that? How, how is that part of your life now? Well, the, the, the robes aren't, I haven't worn robes. Wow, since I came back from Japan in 92. Uh, but, mm. you know, I'm actually, I'm very happy with, uh, the practice here. You know, I, I sit every morning and do walking meditation. I've done some bunch of Vipassana retreats. I like them. I don't, mm. I don't see things the same way that mm. they do, but that didn't matter. They sit and, uh, they, all the, Vipassana here that I've done, and I've done it with uh, Myanmar monks in the traditional temple. There's other Vipassana here uh, that, you know, done by uh, Western-trained uh, people, and then they're fob- probably fine. I don't know anything about them. But they do, the the ones I do, they do uh, the Mahasa method, which is just like Zazen. It's just watching your breath go in and out with you know, emphasis on your hara. Uh, so, uh, anyway, and yeah, and I, I got more into walking. I, I never was into gaining that much, but the walking meditation here sort of, um, got me. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I miss, you know, I miss and I dream about community, but I really think, uh, uh, it's unlikely to happen again like that. But, but we have community still in, uh, like this. <laughs> so many ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and it all continues in various ways. Do you, do you have, what about you? Well, I haven't really had a, a, a zazen practice for years. Um, I'd I say the closest I come now is is um, um, practicing tai chi. Which, yeah, you know, in the in the um, it comes so close uh, philosophically because um, the condition that you're trying to um, practice is uh, one of being. Uh, completely open to change, you know, mm. not, not only being committed to, to that, to the next movement, um, that it's changeable to, from anything to anything. Um, so I like that aspect of it and it does slow me down and, and I do, you know, focus on my breathing and coordinating with the movement. I mean, it's a very, uh, sophisticated practice that requires years of, of learning minutia of, of um, you know, how, how the, the, the skeletal muscular skeletal system uh, works together. Um, 
So there's that. And I've been taking Feldenkrais classes, which also have some aspects of this, you know, relaxing, uh, deeply relaxing, and then activating only one muscle or one joint at a time. Mm. Um, you know, so in feeling the effect of a gentle movement. Um, so these are very body based. Um, but my feeling is, you know, that Zazen is the mother of all practices and, you know, I miss it. Um, I'm not terribly disciplined. I don't get up early in the morning. Sometimes I'm up too late, you know, and, but, um, <laughs> but I think it's, for me, it's, it's, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. You never forget how to do it. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. You're, you're, uh, you're, you know, one of the points of of going to Zen Center and Tassara and all that is to bring uh, your Zazen into your daily life. Well, that's an essential element. It's not like one of many you can choose from. Uh, and, uh, you know, with the Tai Chi and the music and even the audio work, you're, it, it sounds like you're being... Uh, you're you're involved with uh uh concentration uh awareness uh and uh you know uh sounds pretty good to me yeah 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 mm. well so, uh go on oh um so I was going to tell you, you know, I was I was at the Zen Center for the last year of Suzuki Roshi's life. Yeah. So um, I I had the good fortune of having Doksan with him once. Ah. And um, you know, I had all the instructions. You know, I was more or less kind of a newbie. Um, and I, I I did everything right going in. I did all the right bows and and everything and sat down, had a conversation with him, got up to leave, did the right bows leaving. But as I came to the door, I just opened the door and forgot I was supposed to bow at the door. So I turned around to bow, and he was doing a full prostration in, in my direction. Hmm. There, was, there were many amazing, wonderful moments. There were... So many, you know, so many of us who were um, going through all kinds of stuff, you know, emotional stuff, growing up, relationships, uh, all kinds of interactions. Um, but, I mean, the overall, the overarching uh, experience uh, was phenomenal, just phenomenal, mm. for me at least. Mm. Yeah. And you, after he died, uh, you were around because you've told some about uh, that. Uh, so you came in 1970, uh, and you said you were there six years. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, um, uh, you were, were you at Green Gulch, Jenny? Yeah. And Green Gulch was the last place I was before I left. Hmm. And I I remember, uh, you know, I let Reb know I was leaving. And he he said he was he said, you know, um, 
out there, you're lucky if you can go to church once a week. Here, we are there every day. Um, but I was ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. So where did you go? Oh, I moved to Berkeley. Um, I, uh, I I worked as a carpenter. I actually, after I left, uh, Paul Disco hired me one summer to work on um, um, his friend's house. Um, I can't remember his first name, Wolf, the restaurateur. Michael Wilde. Michael. Michael Wilde. Yeah, Michael Wilde. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that was a great summer. I mean, I, I'm, I was so enthusiastic. Um, he taught me how to play. Uh, oh, that's great. You know, and I, I got pretty adept at, um, at getting, you know, full width shavings that floated away in the air, and nice mirror smooth finishes. It was it was wonderful. I loved the work. Mm. Um, and I also worked on the Lindisfarne building for a little while. Oh, that's him. great. That's great. Interesting building. Uh, yeah, never... for for the, Go on. for the Michael Wild, for the Michael Wildhouse, we um, we we drove up to Oregon to uh, sell. We're going to get Port Orford cedar. Yeah. Uh, only all the Port Orford cedar that's grown in the United States is shipped to Japan. So uh, I don't know how he did it. Paul was very resourceful, and he found um, he found a couple of standing dead Port Orford trees. Yeah. And we, we we borrowed an Alaska chainsaw mill from somebody. We milled all these slabs. Wow. Um, and um, I, the guy that um, lent us the mill, uh, I think on the last day that we were working, came and took us to his place, and he had this sauna that was just god-awful hot, and we got in it, in and out of it, and he gave us some potent weed to smoke. <laughs> so when we're driving back to wherever it was we were staying, we're driving past all these beaches, and the sun is beginning to go down, and it was absolutely stunningly gorgeous, and Paul was, like, fixated on driving. He was like, stoned and driving, you know, just totally hugging the road. And I kept saying, Paul, Paul, please stop. Let's go to the beach. Finally, he stopped, and we saw this wonderful, incredible sunset. Ah, that's and then, great. Then the next day, the next day we, we drove down to the California border, and we get to the border, and the, uh, the agricultural control people said, you can't bring that in here. Um, there's, you know, there's beetles in the, in the bark. They inspected the wood. And so Paul said, well, how would it be if we, uh, went back into Oregon and chopped off all the sapwood? And the guy said it would be okay. So we, we offloaded every single piece and with axes and adzes, we, uh, chopped off all of the, um, right there, right there. Well, I think we drove back to a beach or someplace and offloaded them, and then we. Well, how did you offload it? By hand. Well, how how big were they? There were two of you. There were. Oh, there were slabs. Yeah, they were already milled into slabs. We had done that. Yeah. Okay. I've seen slabs that two of us couldn't lift. Is what I was thinking of. But um, uh, all right. So, yeah, so, yeah, so you did that. 
Yeah, and then we drove down, and the truck broke down somewhere, and it was a Sunday, so it took, I don't know, four or five hours for someone to come and, you know, repair the wheel or whatever it was, and then finally we got back. Mm. That was an that was an adventure, yeah. Yeah. Hey, when you were working on Michael Wilde's house, did you meet his wife, Natasha? I th yeah, I think so, yeah. She's I'm black. Lately. She's black and beautiful. Yeah. I loved her. She was so good. And she spoke Chinese. Really? Yeah. Wow. I got involved with her with some stuff with the U.S.-China People's Association. I'm trying to get Taj Mahal to China uh, mm. and some other musicians. Uh, anyway, I really liked her. Mm. Mm. My, when... Uh, when Green started, uh, we had, there was this food critic for, I think, the examiner. And um, he and his wife came to Green's and they were sort of, they were sort of grumpy. And then, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know how I knew it, but I called up Michael and I, I told him they were there. And, uh, you know, there were some really good, well-respected food critics, but Michael said, not them. He said, you know, they want free food and, um, um, you know, uh, I, I remember the guy had complained to me about some stuff. So he said, look, here, I'll give you his home number. Call him up and butter him up. And, and that might help. So I did. And the guy said, well, we couldn't smoke. I said, well, actually, all you had to do was ask for ashtrays. You were in the smoking section. Oh, mm. I didn't know that. And so I talked mm. to him for a while. Then he said, well, I was going to give you a bad review, but I'll give you a good review now. <laughs> <laughs> that was all thanks to Michael. That was our first review, too. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Uh, so there you are. Uh, uh, Oh yeah, you you were working on the Lindisfarne building. Well, the sound separation in that thing was non-existent. You could hear somebody turning pages in the room next to you if they were reading. Interesting, yeah, yeah. So, all right, so you come, <laughs> you, so there you are working with Paul. What happened next? Well, I mean, after that, um, you know, I worked as a carpenter in Berkeley for a number of years. And um, then uh, I was my dad offered me uh, a job working for his business, which I did. By this time, I was married to my first wife and had my son. And um, I did that for a while. And then I did all sorts of things. I mean, I, I worked as a a web designer such as it was. I mean, I wasn't all that great at it. Um, and around 19, oh, in the late 80s, I started playing around with um, making my own speaker cables. And um, wow, really kind of, it was kind of a hit and miss affair. Um, but I was making things that were better than you could buy commercially. Wow. Um, and um, then one time I went to the 
what is it called? The CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. This was 1992 or something. Um, and um, I met this gentleman from Italy uh, who the, the sound in the room was interesting to me. And he said, it's all due to the cables. And I, I said, oh, really? I find that hard to believe. You know, and he said, no, here, you take one uh, home with you. And he gave me a rather expensive cable to take home and, and play with. And I became the, the distributor for that brand. And I came to learn that he was not the manufacturer. In fact, he was, he was a, a, an importer himself. Um, he was actually kind of charging me too much money for it. And I met the designer who was a, uh, a Japanese gentleman who at the time was living in, in, um, in, um, what do you, in Tuscany, in the, in the countryside in Tuscany. And I had gone to visit this, this uh, Italian gentleman. He introduced me to the designer who said, no, you should be buying directly from us. These cables were made in Japan. Um, and uh, this designer was very unusual he had um, he had a pair of speakers that were shaped like a cornucopia and covered entirely with cork and he had built his own speaker drivers and uh, so on so I became very involved with his stuff and I spent a lot of time with him uh, you know querying him you know what principles was he designing around what things was he um, uh, you know, what was he focused on? And so I learned a lot from him. Uh, then he later partnered with uh, a, a man named Robert Churchill, who was a cousin to Winston Churchill. And mm. they had this big to-do in England in a, in a castle near Salisbury. And I went to visit there. Um, but later on, we, we had a falling out over, over a, you know, transaction that I didn't think was fair to me. And so I kind of gave up on audio altogether. Uh, but after a couple of years, I thought, oh, well, you know, I've got some stuff in the storage. Maybe I'll put together a little system. So I put it together and I wasn't happy with the sound. So I started uh, designing um, cables of my own. Um, and um, they were pretty successful from the very beginning because I was, I was following principles. And then I just amplified what I had learned, but, you know, I did everything to the max, you know, the, the cut, the conductors, the treatment of conductors, the materials, the shields, et cetera, et cetera. And the very first design um, cable is, is more or less something I still build today, although with, you know, some modifications. Uh, I have uh, many other models that I've created since then, but um, that was kind of how that started. Wow. That's really yeah. neat. That's really, that's so impressive. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, you know how most people hear music today? I mean, you know, like, like most people in the world, I think, you know, I'll, I'll uh, be talking to some young Indonesian here, uh, and they'll, they'll pull out their smartphone and play me something. That's the main speaker people are hearing That's on, the, I think. The, the, the engineer that designed, you know, the high-end speaker that I told you about, our speaker, he's now working on a design for Walmart. He can't, you know, he can't really make a living designing high-end stuff, but he can make a living designing, a, you know, a, a speaker that's less than $100 for Walmart or even uh -huh. less than 50 for Walmart. Uh -huh. 
Well, yeah. most people can't afford the thing to put those speakers with and don't have a place to live that's big enough. They just listen on their, their phone. Uh, the, the expense can be just astronomical. Yeah. You know, for super systems, I mean, you know, beyond a million dollars is not unimaginable. <laughs> that's True. great. Yeah. So, well, there's a, there's a market for that because there's uh, so many rich people now, super rich, and they got to figure out what to do with their money. And so uh, they tend to want to buy the most expensive. Uh, I mean, some of them do. Uh, yes. There's yeah. definitely a market for the most expensive things. They don't necessarily know what's most expensive. That in Japan, uh, uh, that, that that's done a lot. Things are like very expensive, so they assume it's the best. There'll be whiskeys that are very expensive. Okay. Yeah. And well, you know, I I I got a phone call from a, a gentleman who was living in Hong Kong, who told me, he said, I'm writing an article about Japanese audiophiles uh, for the Wall Street Journal. Can I interview you? And I said, sure, of course. Um, so um, there's, there are a few quotes from me in that article. But one of the things that was so interesting, he was talking about these people in Japan who uh, pay the electric company to put up a dedicated transformer for their house only. So that they will not. <laughs> Go on. So they won't, they won't get the noise from their you know, their neighbor's refrigerators and, and, and uh, skill saws or whatever is coming through. Um, and there was one gentleman who his life passion was putting every resource he had into his stereo system. So the place that he lived was so tiny that every time he needed to get to the refrigerator, he had to move the couch. <laughs> oh, wow. 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 Yeah. That's something. That's great. Wow. Huh. Japanese audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So now you're 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 marketing stuff, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you market it? Do you have a do you have a company that you could give me the name of? Do you have a website? I do. Uh, my website is um the same as my email, it's um, www.lotusgroupusa.com. Oh. You know, and it shows, it, it will show all the products, and then there's a, a blog section where I, you know, rant about one topic or another. And, um, you know, I used to go to trade shows, but since the pandemic, I haven't gone. And, um, of course, they're very expensive. But... Um, I'd like to do it again um, when I feel it's safe, but um, it doesn't feel like it's totally safe yet. Um, one of the people in my Tai Chi class caught it, and I said, where did you get it? He said, I don't know. He said, maybe it was in Costco or Trader Joe's. Uh, I wear a mask all the time, but nevertheless, he you know, he wears a mask. Nevertheless, he, he got it. Yeah, masks have sort of gone out. I mean, people wear masks here. And so if I go to the bank to wear a mask, we went to the, we got uh, national insurance here. We went to that building, wore a mask. In Japan, I just saw my best friends from Japan, uh, Katrinka and I, 
went to a Budnet dinner with them. They say everybody in Japan is wearing a mask all the time. You know, driving in their, almost everybody, driving in their cars and, you know. They they still have a high rate, as I understand it, they still have a high rate of uh, cases there. Is that right? In Japan, is that right? Well, you know, they might uh, be sort of like here. That and and I've certainly noticed that in Japan, uh, their behavior is is uh, generally uh, dependent on uh, it, whether they can be seen or not. There's there's a there's an upside. I, I, would you consider the government there to be somewhat authoritarian? I mean, that's my impression. Well, I don't notice anything. I don't notice anything in Japan either. I know Shinyo mm-hmm. Fuku, my dear friend translator said well japan's a police state you just never see any police and that's mm. what singapore's like yeah uh, uh singapore's great uh yeah you know they've got their famous 500 dollars fines for this and that but who's gonna you, you never see a policeman uh and mm. we never see police here I mean, mm. the only time we see police is that on the highway. There'll be 20 of them together, stopping guards, checking registration. Uh, mm-hmm. I've never heard of anybody getting a, a, a speeding violation or any type of moving violation. Uh, well, uh, this country here, this country here is really, really sick. It's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Oh, I don't know if you know, but we had three mass, maybe more, but three major mass shootings in the last couple of days. Oh, yeah, yeah. We get your news, you know. Uh, Uh, Oh, it's too much. Yeah. An Indonesian I know is pretty savvy. He said it's never been better than it is now. He said there's more freedom, more freedom of speech now, even though that they're, you know, they just passed a law. You can't criticize. Oh, you can't slander, let's say which is more, mm. you can't slander the president or public officials. Uh, you can't slander religion. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I hear people doing it. I mean, they don't really worry about it. But, uh, uh, and and uh, they just made it illegal to have sex outside of marriage. And uh, so, but, it, it, and, and, and uh, you can't live together unless you're married and uh, mm. stuff like that. But, you know, they're not going to enforce it. They're just making the fanatics happy by giving them some laws. I mean, I there will be some enforcement, but nothing, you know, it just seems fine. Everything seems fine. That's uh, no, great. That's great, you know. Um, and yeah. they, they, of course, have plenty. Everywhere, there's plenty of problems. Uh, yes. So, speaking of that, what do you think about climate change? Huh. Uh, did you see the movie Don't Look Up? Oh, yeah, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're careening towards something. Yeah. We're already in it. Yeah. We're already in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I just don't know what is the world going to do about it. You know, uh, the way that we've structured our societies and our technology and our business 
uh, is just flat out unhealthy. You know, um, I don't I don't know what's going to change it. It seems like the 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 vested interests aren't really going to ever really allow major change. Um, we still, you know, kowtow to Saudi Arabia. You know, we still oil is still king in some kind of what perverse way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't we can't seem to legislate our way out of a paper box paper bag to save ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know what the prognosis is. You know, I'm concerned for my son and my nephew and, and these young people coming up. You know, what what is it? What is it they're going to have to face? And I think it's literally going to be a whirlwind. You know, I mean, the the size of tornadoes is increasing, the size of storms is increasing, droughts is, and and rainfall. I mean, all of these things that are, you know, that are just out of balance. And and it it all, you know, to kind of tie it up in a bow in a sense, it all comes down to our you know our sense of 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 uh, Concern for other people, you know, our, yeah. our, our willingness to entertain that that other people, you know, need to be um, taken care of and lifted up the same as we would want to be, and 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 to focus on that rather than on profit and and selfishness. And yeah. it seems like it seems like uh, Jesus and Buddha were trying to point the way. Said, you know, the way you guys are going is the wrong direction, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turn around, go the other way, and uh, we haven't done it. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yes, I have sons and grandchildren. Katrinka has a son. We have grandchildren with all of them. Um, I think um, if we want to be positive, we have to look at a bigger picture uh, and, and say that. Regardless of what happens here, we're all destined to be Buddha. <laughs> or, or that, um, uh, there's a bigger picture where everything's okay, but I don't think it's okay here. Uh, and it may be right now it is, but the prognosis does not look good. Doesn't look like we have anywhere near, uh, enough, uh, ability to deal with it. As a, you know, the human race. Well, I know um, the, there's that story about Gary Snyder went to his Zen teacher, and and this was he was what in the fifties he was in Japan I think. Yeah. He went, he went to his teacher and he said, you know, if we don't if we don't do something uh, uh, about you know about the the planet about the ecology, uh, we won't survive. And he says his teacher said, no need to survive. Oh, that's good. I haven't heard that one. I've heard the one where he said to his teacher, and I've, I've repeated it many times, uh, that he was, he was, it, it, you know, he, he was involved with, uh, problems about the environment and this and that, asked the teacher what he thought. And he said, well, there's two jobs for the monk, sitting in and sweeping the temple. So, so sweeping the temple is, uh, what people called engaged Buddhism, uh, is doing something. Mm. Uh, of course, in, in Japan, 
in the first part of the last century engaged Buddhism meant uh, uh, conquering Asia. <laughs> yeah. you know combines rather than splits atoms and doesn't have radiation as a byproduct Uh, so that could change and and don't look up no not don't look up in uh, oh for all mankind the the series uh, about you know going to the moon and Mars and all that. It's a fictionalized version of it with different, a different history happening. Uh, fusion solved, uh, the climate problem in it. You no, know, fusion won't solve the climate problem because we'll, we'll just use fusion to continue, uh, business as usual. That's right. Um, you know, I mean, it, the, the kind of change that's required is, you know, is a change of consciousness, a change of, 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 of how we view what it means to be human on the earth and what it means to be a living being on the earth and, um, and to, uh, and to really honor and acknowledge our interdependence. Um, I mean, I, I love the Dalai Lama. He says, you know, eight billion people, one family. That's his message. You know, he, he seems, he seems when he's speaking publicly and, you know, he's talking to all sorts of people and from all walks of life, he talks very simply. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't talk in technical Buddhist terms. He just says, you know, it's real simple. You know, you have to have, um, uh, you know, you have to have the, the right, um, the right regard for other people. You have to develop a bodhicitta, you know, you have to, um, and this is what's this is what can save us. Yeah, is this awareness that we're not separate. Yeah, um, kindness. Kindness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that there's hope for that. I, I always I'm always an optimist in the face of all this stuff that's happening. I still I'm an incurable optimist. So. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Could be. Could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I am too. But I'm sort of uh, uh, my optimism uh, includes uh, the total destruction of Earth as a, uh, a total destruction of the biosphere. I still think everything's all right at that level, but. Um, it would be very painful and disappointing, uh, enormously bad thing uh, that we need to do everything we can to avoid. An uprising of people, you know, like could change things. Uh, yeah. But yeah. but not good deeds. I think yeah. we're beyond good deeds. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, it has to be structural. The, the changes have yeah. to be structural, and and for that, um, I don't I don't know. I mean, we've gone into some pretty weird places in the last uh, last number of years, so hard to say how that's going to be possible. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to see how it could be possible. Well, um, incidentally, um, I believe in good deeds anyway, even if it. Uh, doesn't even if it doesn't help you know um i I get this image in 
from on the beach where, you know, everybody on earth is dying from, uh, I guess from a big war with Russia and the United States from the, the radiation. And it, it takes place in Australia. And there's a scene where a guy has a sports car and he's, uh, he's, you know, everybody's dying. He's going to be dying soon. He, he prepares his car like somebody would who was going to be gone for a year, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, disconnects the battery and, you know, maybe took the tires off. I don't know. We covered it and stuff. Uh, uh, and, uh, we compost and, and recycle everything we can. Recycling doesn't help them. No. <laughs> I mean, it's, no. it's, 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 uh, but, um, recycling is a failure worldwide now. Uh, well, Amer- America's recycling 5%. It just might be that we are the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just might be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but um, uh, do you have anything to say on a lighter note uh, to conclude? (laughs) Yeah. um, Boy. uh, when I get up in the morning, the first thing I like to do is go outside in my pajamas and weed in the garden. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I think one of the things that, that has preserved my sanity during the, the pandemic is being outside, working in the garden, doing Tai Chi on the deck, you know, breathing outside, watching the the hawks fly overhead. Um, these are wonderful things, you know. And, mm. you know, take take whatever blessings I can. Um, and that seems to be plenty. Yeah. I don't I don't think I need a whole lot. You know, I'd like to be um um I can't retire. I have to keep working. So maybe at some point we will, you know, there's, there's, there's a possibility that we will, but for the time being, you know, like to be free of financial worry. But other than that, I mean, things are, are, are good. You know, life is good. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Uh, I love that image of you out there weeding in your (laughs) pajamas in the morning. Um, and where do you live? I live in Black Point. Do you know where that is? No. So if you go north um, out of uh, San Rafael, past Terra Linda, and you come to 37 going east, yeah, uh, there's um, about a mile east is a, you know, some hills on either side. Yeah. And on the right where the where the Renaissance Fair used to be held years ago, that's Black Point, and so oh. it's it's really it's like it's right on the bay. It's urban wild uh, uh, interface land. You know, we're surrounded by oak trees, and uh, you know we have a lot of deer and wild turkeys, and even some coyotes these days. And um, you know, we can walk right down to the bay, uh, so it's very beautiful. Quiet. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. You, you get any uh, mountain lions? No, I haven't seen any. I've 
maybe heard of up on Mount Verdell, there might have been a mountain lion sighting, yeah. but I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I, Katrinka was driving. We, you know, I lived with in John Terrence's barn for nine years, up on the mm. top of a, the ridge there, and Santa Rosa, outside uh-huh. of Santa Rosa, and she was driving in one day, and a big mountain lion leaped in, like almost over the car in the front, it leaped over, and you know disappeared <laughs> wow exciting yeah yeah every once in a while there'd be something like that mm. I did see a coyote just I caught a glimpse of him and uh, boy he was way bigger than I expected oh really he was across, crossing our property uh, he was pretty big Like a couple of years ago, I read they were uh, stocking, uh, they were bringing 500 king cobras in to stock the national forest because they were getting low on king cobras. God, huh? Isn't that something? Well, well, it must, uh, it must have a profound effect on, on the ecology. I know there's this, you may have seen it, um, when they talked about the, uh, the intro- reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone. Yeah. And, and it actually changed the, the the landscape. It changed the lay of the land. It had such a profound influence. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, yeah, the, what, what they've done in Yellowstone, I mean, I mean, there's studies of it. Everything the Forest Service was doing, it would have terrible effects, you know. They decided to get rid of the wolves. That was a long time ago. It had a bad effect. Then they decided to get rid of the bears, Mm. Uh, and they told everybody they moved them off. They mass murdered bears. Like when I first went to Yellowstone, there were bears everywhere. And, and they were like, it was too much. You know, you couldn't yeah. go anywhere. People would, would get mauled by them because they would think they were friendly and, you know, even, you know, try to take pictures with them with their family and stuff. The famous leaky, they're all famous, I guess. Uh, was in charge of a huge uh, national uh, preserved area in Kenya or somewhere. And elephants, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they wanted to stop elephants from destroying all these trees. But what happened is they, they in, in this very large area, they didn't do anything. And they discovered it was all part of the natural ecology of the area and everything the elephants were doing was beneficial. But you, you know, if, if you just looked at one thing, it, it looked like they were being destructive. So, so here's the, here's, here's the connection with what we were talking about, about climate change, which is that the earth has the potential to heal itself. It's given the opportunity. Yes. Uh, the biosphere. Yeah. I, I think of the whole universe as being a, a, a Gaia, a, you know, like a living mm. organism or something. Um, uh. Yeah, I, you know, that, that sort of thing is possible. Uh, you know, uh, Lovelock, who, who created Gaia, the theory of Gaia, where it was ridiculed at first, and and uh, uh, 
you know, greatly respected at the end of his life, which was recently. He he thought, uh, you know, he, he's the one that created that idea that the earth is a is like an organism that takes care of self-balancing and everything. Yeah. Um, but his, so he wrote Gaia, the revenge of Gaia. And then, uh, he, he wrote, um, rough ride into the future might've been his last book. Um, and he felt, he, he wasn't really pleased with all the environmentalism. He felt a lot, a lot of it was too uh, much like a religion where people weren't being uh, scientific enough or something. But uh, he felt like that the best case scenario for us is like enormous, enormous uh, uh, disaster of climate change killing off 80% of the population. Uh, and, and, uh, then the 20% that survives creating a more sustainable and, and benign mm. future. I mean, that's what he thought was the best case scenario. Go back to living like indigenous people. Well, probably not. You know, there'd be some, some, but some things in common with that, not, you know, not like turning the world into a garbage can and a toilet. And, yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. There I go again, ruining, ruining the <laughs> atmosphere. Uh, yeah. Hmm. I had a part. I had a play. I had a part to play. Anyway. Ah. Uh, so. <laughs> well, Joe, it's been great talking with you. Uh, Likewise. Really? So much. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, uh, I need a picture. Send me a A picture. picture. Yeah. You mean a current, a current picture of me? Uh, Yeah, a current picture, you know, last 20 years anyway. Um, and, um, and a picture, uh, from like when you came to Zen Center back then, if you have anything. You know, there's a photo of me in the, early wind bell i'm holding up a mop i think i'm draining it and my hair is still uncut i have no idea which issue that would have been in they're all on cuke.com uh yeah um but uh, you don't have any old pictures from then Mm -hmm. oh i don't do that's a good question i don't know if i have i'll have to look well, what's your okay, oldest picture? What's your oldest picture? Oh, gosh. I don't know. It's also disorganized. <laughs> I'd have to look. Do you remember Barbara Levansky? Sure. All right. She might have one. I always ask her. She's got like 70,000 pictures. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. She, she you know, sometime mid-70s or something. Hmm. All right. Very good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks a lot. It's been really fun talking with you. And, uh, oh. yeah, let's hook up if I get there or you get here. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. I would love it. Thank, yeah, thank you. So thank much. you. It's been good. Take care.
Bye-bye. So thanks a lot, Joe. Uh, Joe Cohen. Uh, And listen, if I need any high-end speaker cables, I know where to get them. You can uh, check out Joe's um, high-end audio business. Uh, which is called the Lotus Group, breathing life into music at um, lotusgroupusa.com, L-O-T-U-S-G-R-O-U-P-U-S-A.com. And it really is a high-end audio file site. I don't know what anything is they're selling. Listen to this quote. This is like a quote from somebody of what they thought of his uh, piranha wire system. I am going deeper into the extreme zone through this Annapurna board by piranha wire. Uh, And uh, this nirvana belongs to the class of speechless products of the service of music, piano tuner at Audio Exotics Forum. Anyway, it's uh, it's pretty impressive. Um, I just sent a link uh, to uh, my engineer here in Bali because uh, he deals with some place like that and got some high-end cables, and I'm going to send that link to uh, Joe. <laughs> So, the Lotus Group, breathing life into music. And I see right here, if you want to email, it's joe at lotusgroupusa.com. Hmm. Oh, and here's uh, another uh, site that has uh, an article on it. And this is pretty good. It's the Audio Beatnik. That's the audiobeatnik.com. And uh, there's an article called, and it's just right there in the link, Boppin' <laughs> Dash. And there's dashes between these words. Boppin' Novato Here Lotus Groups Granada Speakers. And that's something I, I should have said, is that um, I said I don't know what any of the things are. Well, that I was looking at his site. I was just glancing. But speakers, yeah, they're really into speakers. I should have said that, but now I've said it. Um, All right, it says, Joe Cohen of the Lotus Group invited Becky and me to come over to the place, uh, to his place, uh, to hear his Granada speakers that he he is putting back into production. So on a beautiful fall day in Northern California, Becky and I headed over to Marin to give them a listen. We had a great time getting to know Joe and listening to his wonderful system. Joe is without a doubt one of the truly nice guys in audio, down to earth and very knowledgeable. I particularly appreciated that Joe had such kind things to say about other speaker and cable designers. Joe started his audio journey as an audio hobbyist and freely admits that he isn't an engineer. In the 80s, he and some buddies got together regularly to listen to equipment. 
Quote, we understood that cables could make a difference, but there were very limited offerings at the time, he said. He started playing around with building cables by buying every gauge of copper wire they had at his local Radio Shack store. The first cables he built were an improvement over what he had used previously. A friend's Litz, Litz interconnectors planted a seed in his mind as to how much difference cables make. A few more years went by and a few more lessons learned led to the development of his own piranha wire. Anyway, well, I think that should be prana. Uh, like in Hinduism, prana in India, life force, uh, the breath, vital spirit energy. It goes on. You can read it. Uh, that's really neat. Uh I've known people into studios and work and stuff, but uh, never a, I didn't realize I knew a high-end speaker maker. Hmm. Oh, and here I see that they're selling a, the Fosgo meter, azimuth range meter. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> I love techie stuff that I don't understand just to glance at it. You know, it's one thing about phenomena, and it, it's like fractal. You know, fractal, you just keep going into something, and it, it just keeps, like, repeating, and you go deeper and deeper, and there's no end to it. That's the way phenomena is. You get into anything, you can just go so deep, and, and that's true. Every thought you have, every every facet of existence, uh, you can just go in and in and in and in and in, and uh, it's endless. That's why, actually, my practice and, and what I believe in is being superficial. It's all right here on the surface, really. <laughs> but, of course, I, I uh, appreciate every depth there is. It doesn't matter where you are in it, on the surface, on the bottom, uh, at any particular place, they're coasting around in it. Okay. Anyway, yes, thanks a lot, Joe. That was interesting. Uh, loved the picture of uh, Peter Schneider gathering the hail. And uh, thanks for reminding me about Suzuki Roshi going around the Zinda whacking. Everybody saying, you know, pretty much when the bell rings, get up, go to the Zindo. And don't forget, next week, part two, Joe Cohen and... Making and listening to music. This has been a Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm DC Poopa of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives coming to you from Sleepy Senor with Doggy Bandita and sweet, lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. Mm-hmm.